Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to jump right into things this morning. Um, First I want to tell you, you know, the title of the message this morning is Drop Everything, but I almost titled the message Bad Company. But if I did that, I'd have that song going in my head, kind of like it is right now, but... (laughs) And yeah, so my point um, this morning is that um, Jesus often kept um, what society would consider to be get bad company. Jesus went with those people, and for a good reason. Um, when Jesus encountered a man named Levi, um, also called Matthew, and I'll be calling him Matthew throughout the morning, even though some of our readings are going to say um, Levi. You know, we're not insure, entirely sure why two names, to complete transparency here. Um, there's some traditional ideas behind it, but the Bible doesn't go right, come right out and say it. So um, I'm going to call him Matthew, but sometimes um, that's what he calls himself in his gospel. But uh, Luke calls him um, Levi. So, all right. So um, I don't stick with tradition. I stick with what we do know from the Bible. There's plenty to work with there. So like I said, let's jump right into it and see how we can apply God's words to our own lives. Today should be pretty easy. I'm going to give you a lot to walk out the door with, some things to talk about this afternoon, and maybe some things to um, share with some other people. So we're sticking to the book of Luke. I've kind of um, honed in on that for this Lenten season because I think we can, when we concentrate on um, certain areas, we can glean a lot of information. We can get, uh, glean a lot of lessons out of that area. So uh, we're in Luke 5 this morning, as you heard me read this morning, and um, I'm going to reiterate some of this. And I'm going to go through a couple of different versions to pull out a couple of different words um, and help us concentrate on what God has to say to us this morning. So without further ado, let's look at verse 27, chapter 5, verse 27. It says, After that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him simply these words, Follow me. And then in verse 28 we have Matthew or Levi's immediate reaction. Verse 28 says, Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Now, uh, fair warning this morning. I'm assuming you know some, uh, thing, something about this, uh, this historical account already. I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks here because uh, when, it says, when Luke says that um, Levi left everything, there is a lot to be left behind. Um, there's a great deal on Matthew's, a great deal of money on Matthew, uh, his tax collector's table to be left behind. Um, tax collectors played a significant role in the New Testament, and it certainly does in the, uh, the, our, our lesson this morning, obviously. Um, later on in Luke's Gospel, actually, we meet uh, a short tax collector, a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, who shinnies up the tree because Jesus is coming by and he wants to uh, see Jesus. Um, Jesus calls him down from that tree by name, and he goes and has a meal, like we saw in, uh, with uh, Matthew also. He goes and has a meal at Zacchaeus' house. Uh, again, keeping that bad company, right? Um, often in the Gospels, we see the words um, despised tax collector, but more often than not, we, ha- we uh, omit that because it's kind of redundant to say um, despised tax collector. Um, taxes in Rome was a very complex affair, to say the least, at that time of, of the uh, world history. Um, Rome would actually lease out the right to be a tax collector, lease out the, ta- the right to the highest bidder. Rome would say, okay, uh, we want, since you have this many people and this much commerce going on here, we want this amount of tax from that area. And then people would bid either close to that amount or they would actually bid a little bit over that amount. So then what they taxed on people, um, if they taxed anything over uh, what Rome was expecting, they got to keep that. If they didn't get enough taxes, they had to make up the difference from their own coffers. So you can understand how things were working there. So now there was a surcharge there was, um, uh, on, on top of all that. So now we're, we're still in Capernaum. 
Um, and the people in the Galilean region would expect to pay um, land tax, just like we do right now. They didn't until Rome put them under oppression, and so now they're paying this land tax. Um, they'd also pay a tax, and it was more of a guesstimate on the items that they purchased, the stuff that they purchased. They didn't have sales tax in the marketplace, but it, it essentially was a sales tax based on how much you made, and then they would just estimate, okay, then you bought this much, and we're going to tax you this much. So it's estimated that at that time they were paying well over 20%, maybe 30% of their income went to some sort of tax in that region. Now, where Matthew sat, though, on top of that, um, he was in a position between um, two territories, Herod Antipas' territory and Herod Philip's territory. So there was a lot of travel going on through there. So if you were a merchant going from one territory to another, you had to pay tax coming in just to come in there and sell your wares. Then you had to pay tax on all that. So Matthew was collecting a lot of money just because of where he was and what was going on here. Now, obviously, this system, and this is the problem, the system was susceptible to, to great abuse. And most tax collectors kept a good portion of what they collected after they you know, gave Rome what they expected. So Matthew, long story short, was very likely a very wealthy man. I'm not saying he was a corrupt tax collector, um, because um, John the Baptist even talks about it. He says, they ask him, what should tax collectors do? He said, tax what you're supposed to tax and leave it at that. Don't be gouging people. So we don't know that that Matthew was gouging anybody, because again, the Bible just doesn't say that to us, but we can assume that he was rather a rather wealthy man. And we can also assume and know that people despised them. Um, The religious leaders considered them to be unclean. The people of that area, even their friends from childhood, would look at them as traitors. Uh, And believe it or not, even the Romans looked down on tax collectors, saying that, yeah, you were turning on your own people for profit. You You were selling out for this. And Jesus even jumps in here, right? Jesus even talks about them. He lumps them in with prostitutes. Look at Matthew 21. And this is a tax collector talking. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go to the kingdom of God ahead of you. No context needed for that. We'll talk about that maybe another time. But the point is, Jesus kind of lumps them all together. So that's where tax collectors were on uh, the totem pole of society. So how does Jesus deal with this this bad company and people like this? Um, first, let's go back a step and bring the scene um, a little closer to reality. So in verse 27, um, I want to change the, I want to use a Phillips edition here. It says, later on, or literally after that, Jesus went out and looked straight at a tax collector called Levi. He sat at his, as he sat at his office desk. Follow me, he said to him. Uh, a better translation of that um, looked straight at him would be maybe looked straight through him examined him. This wasn't a casual glance. And Jesus just didn't walk out there and say, "Mm, I'm going to pick the first person I see. No, he was really looking at Matthew. That word, um, the Greek word means to to examine thoroughly, right? Or to contemplate. um, Or to learn by looking or learn by observing. So this tells us that Jesus obviously had Matthew um, singled out. Now, why did Jesus look straight at him when he knows who Matthew is and he knows what Matthew's all about? The look, that look wasn't for Jesus' sake, it was for Matthew's sake. So now you have this rabbi coming out here and looking at this man, right? Looking at him. You know, we talk about a lot of these moments in history, and I I like to frame it how the people looked at Jesus at this time and how Matthew would have looked at Jesus at this time. Jesus, uh, uh, this is the understatement of the week, but Jesus is incredibly popular. I mean, people can't get enough of him. Um, You know, everywhere he goes, he gathers a crowd. 
You know, um, when we read verse 27, um, hopefully in your head, you know, the words after that jumped out at you because I'm trying to get you to, to observe the Bible, to read it a little bit differently. Um, and so we, we get something out of context like this when we didn't read up to it. We should say, well, after what? Maybe we should look back. If this reading was in one of our devotionals or something like that, and you started your reading with the words after that, man, I want to go back and I want to see you after, after what is he talking about? Well, we're in chapter 5 of Luke. In chapter 5, in the, about the middle of chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5, some amazing things happen in, in chapter 5 alone. I, at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus heals a man of leprosy. Boom. Big talk about that later on, about the significance of that. And then it says, after he did that, crowds were following him. Right, Great throngs of people were following him to A, listen to what he had to teach, and B, watch to see what he was going to do next. Well, what he does next is he's in Capernaum, he's in a house teaching, and this house is so crowded, and around the house is so crowded, you can't even get to it. This is where the four friends bring their paralyzed friend up, and they go through the roof, and they lower him down. I mean, that's how crowded things were. So just in chapter 5 alone, right right here on Matthew's doorstep, right here in his midst, these things are happening. Jesus is healing, healed someone from leprosy, and he healed the paralyzed man with these crowds around him. So I guarantee that Matthew has heard about what's going on here, what, what, what has happened here. He's undoubtedly, if, if not actually heard Jesus, he, he knows about him. So now, when Jesus looks at him, Right With that look, not a casual glance, not just kind of a sign. No, when he looks at him intently, as if he's examining him, Matthew's, there's a lot going on through Matthew's head. And now, make no mistake about it, people uh, look at and view Jesus as a rabbi. Now, sometimes we use that word and there's some negative connotations, but there really shouldn't be uh, behind the word rabbi. So they, they look at him as a rabbi. Uh, but, and when a rabbi called somebody out of the many um, you know, applicants to be a disciple of his, he would do that. He would look at him rather intently and then use two words. He would say from uh, uh, verse 27, he'd say those two words, follow me. That's what the rabbi would do when he's calling a disciple. That's why some of the versions that we saw, the NLT version, that actually added the words, follow me and be my disciple. That's understood here. Follow me. Looks at him intently and says, follow me. And then Matthew, who deep down inside um, knew he wasn't in the right profession. He's making a lot of money. But this is not the right profession for him or anybody else. This is not the right crowd. Matthew's keeping some pretty bad company himself. So Matthew as a reaction, drops everything, leaves it, sitting there, left, walked away, and he followed Jesus. And then the story takes another plot twist that if we didn't know the Zacchaeus story that I talked about a second ago, if we didn't know that, we'd say, wow, this is just crazy. And the people of, of the, this account, by the way, is in uh, three of the four Gospels. If you're reading these Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, you'd be kind of uh, surprised at what happens next. So take a closer look at Matthew's reaction at just what happened. In fact, we're going to go to Matthew here. Matthew 5, also in uh, chapter 5. It's kind of easy to remember that. Verse 29 says, Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his, ho- in his home. A large number of tax collectors and others, it says, sat down to eat with them, with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so Matthew threw a great party, right? Uh, threw a great banquet. This is, a, this is a massive bash. This is a party. This is a blowout. We're really pulling out all the stops here. Invites his closest friends. Who are his closest friends? Other tax collectors, right? Because other people won't hang out with them anymore, so they kind of band together. This bad company kind of bands together. 
And it also says, um, and others. Right? Oh, it says a large number. That's a, that's a multitude. That's a throng. That's a lot of tax collectors. That's a big bad company, I guess, is what we should say here. But then it says, and others. Right? Okay, huh. Who do you suppose that was? Those and others, right? Well, here, plot twist again. Look at verse 30. But those who were scribes and Pharisees were among them. Hello? Scribes and Pharisees are there. If you're at this party, you know, hobnobbing, going, look at these guys like, what are you doing here? You know, how can you hang out with us? Why are you, why are you here to, to judge us, right? But uh, they're only doing um, what they do best, right? The, the scribes and Pharisees, right? They start grumbling and complaining about Jesus. But they're not complaining to Jesus. They're, hanging, or they're complaining to his disciples about who they're hanging out with, the wrong crowd, wrong crowd keeping this, this bad company, right? Matthew just can't keep this amazing news to himself. And I'm not just talking about what happened to him. You know, that he was called by this rabbi. He called his friends together so they could experience what he was experiencing. Something that we should probably bring home to ourselves. To gather our friends together to experience what we're experiencing. And again, not just the fact that he was called by this rabbi. You know, that he basically won the lottery. You think the tax collector's got to go. No, now we really got to go. Because I was called by a rabbi. Right? He's telling everybody, though, that this is the Messiah. Right? This is the guy who healed that man from a leprosy. This is the one that, that made that man walk that was paralyzed before. And these are the things that he's been teaching, and these are the things that he's been telling us. You know, Matthew's telling everybody that will listen to him that the Messiah is here, um, and it happened in our lifetime, as unbelievable as that is to, to, to apprehend, to comprehend. I'm sure that um, my man Luke was more than happy to, to talk about Jesus' reaction to that Pharisee question, why are you hanging out with these guys? Luke's a doctor, of course, right? So verse 31, um, says to, Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? So I'm sure Luke was smiling as he was, as he was penning that one down. Now here's the thing. God chose Matthew for a very important reason. Um, he was one of the more educated disciples he had to be in order to be a tax collector, in order to be in the position that he was, was in. And to be completely honest and completely transparent, as I said earlier, we don't know a whole lot about Matthew. We don't know a whole lot about a lot of the disciples. There's some teachings from tradition, but again, we learn a whole lot of fact by just reading the Bible. And what we do have, so we can know Matthew, um, is uh, we have the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we learn quite a bit about reading from the author. By, uh, we learn a lot about an author by reading his writings. Mark Twain said that people in the future, where he was speaking, he said people in the future can understand who I am by reading what I've written. I think he said that so he could sell more books, but the point is still valid. We can learn a lot about a person by reading what they have written. And what we learn from Matthew is that he was a true follower of Jesus. Someone who hung on every word that Jesus spoke. Matthew gives us, uh, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Without Matthew's Gospel, we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is complete as it is. It's um, Matthew's Gospel where the bulk of Jesus' actual words are recorded. Far more than any of the other Gospels of Jesus' actual words, the words that would be in red in your Bible. The Lord certainly gave Matthew a gift. Right? That gift of writing. And Matthew never wavered from it. Um, maybe in, so sometimes we think we want somebody else's gift. Well, Matthew, according to what we read, um, didn't preach like Peter. 
didn't, or Stephen, he didn't, he didn't have that, right? We didn't hear him, uh, of him preaching and doing these things. Even, even, the, even tradition, what we read about Matthew, doesn't tell us that. But there he was, taking notes, right? Being a scribe, keeping a record of what was going on, writing down Jesus' words, recording the events that happened. Um, Camillo uh, Rusconi, that's a fun name, Camillo Rusconi was a very accomplished Italian sculptor from the Baroque period. Um, and he sculpted several of the apostles as part of a bigger project. He sculpted Matthew. Now, we've got a couple of different sculptures of Matthew, but I think Rusconi um, depicts Matthew at his finest. Let's take a look at that picture. There he is. And like any good piece of artwork, we're left to decide what he's reading there, what he's looking at. Is it his gospel? Is it maybe some notes that he took down? Maybe it's somebody, uh, somebody else's notes? And is it just me, or does he look a little like Abraham Lincoln? And if you don't believe me, look at this angle of it. If you didn't know better, you might be in the Lincoln Memorial right now, or a statue there. But again, we're left to just ponder what Matthew was reading, what he was doing there. But make no mistake about it, that's who Matthew is. That's who Matthew was. He was a scribe. And God gave him that gift. And thank you, Lord, for giving him that gift, because now we have the Gospel of Matthew, which again records more of Jesus' words than than any of the other Gospels. Now here's the thing I want you to take away this morning, and um, Josh was reading part of this from our other readings this morning. So... um, Take that bulletin home with you and just examine and read some of those other readings because I think they really fit well with what we're going for and the message that we're going for this morning. Here's what I'm saying. God calls people to repentance. God calls people into repentance and invites them into a relationship with him. He calls people to repentance and invites them into a relationship with him. But it's actually Matthew in his gospel that tells us that not everyone will respond to that call. God calls us to repentance and to be in a relationship with him, but not everyone will respond to that. So when Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, it's a command. It's an order. And just like that young man that we heard about, um, I think it was last week, that in the village of Nain, uh, when Jesus interrupted that funeral, there's a, a young man who had died who's on that pallet, and Jesus told him to get up. And I told you that that young man didn't have a choice but to get up. Right? He had no more choice than that baseball that you throw across the yard. Does that baseball have a choice of what it's going to do? Absolutely not. That young man didn't have a choice. So now, neither did Matthew have a choice. Listen to me, this is very, listen to me very carefully now. Stay with me. Don't put things in your mind, in your thoughts in your mind. Let me finish what I'm going to say here. Matthew didn't have an option at first either. When Jesus said, follow me, there's something inside of us that responds to that. And we don't really have a choice initially, immediately. So now let me, let me tell you about what might happen after that, though. Um, think back to that young man from Nain. And I hope, again, I hope you're keeping up with me here. That young man could have later 
Um, after he received that gift from Jesus, he could have refused it. He could have, I'm, I told you, Nain is in the mountains. That young man could have gone up to a, any of those cliffs, took a nosedive off it, and said, thanks, Jesus, but no thanks. Thanks for that gift you've given me, but I, I refuse it. And I want to go back to the state I was in when you found me and when you called me. I want to go back to death. Now, that seems kind of ridiculous, but that's exactly what we do. Matthew got up from his tax collector's table, and he could have taken two steps, and he could have looked at that table and said, thanks, but no thanks, I'm good, being dead in my sin. And that happens to us on a daily and on a regular basis, and I see it all the time. I'm just going to be real with you for a second. Because I see people come in, and it'll be a major event where God is calling them, and I can see it in them, and I can see their response. It might be as simple as a baptism, or, or a wedding, or it might be something bigger like a funeral, and I can see God's calling working on them, and I can hear the way they talk, and I can see them responding to it. And then as soon as that's done, they go back to the tax collector's booth, or they take a nosedive off that cliff and say, thanks, but no thanks. I, don't want, I want to go back to where I was and what I was. I'm going to refuse that. So initially, when God calls us, we don't have a choice. We have to have that reaction. It's just part of our DNA, part of who we are. But then what we do with that is up to us. Matthew didn't take two steps and say, I just, I just can't do it. I, can't, I just can't leave it. i got to come back to it. Even though I know I'm dead in my sin over here and I'm alive with you. Why would we go back, right? Because Jesus calls us at crazy times, right? But we don't want to go back to that condition we were in. Jesus called part of the, some of the disciples and they were out fishing when he called them. Peter, James, John, they left two big boats full of fish. Walked away from it, said, I found something better. Matthew leaves stacks of coins and money sitting on his table, saying, I found something better because I know I've been missing this in my life this whole time. And they said, even to Jesus' face, they said, we've left everything to follow you, and we're not going back for anything. Do we feel the same way? What is it that you won't leave behind to follow him, to answer that call. And maybe we need to define some terms there. What does it mean to be called? What, is, what does that actually mean? Because every Christian is called by Christ. Well, to be called and to respond to that call means to, to keep Jesus or to make Jesus the center of your life. You might call yourself a believer. You might even call yourself a follower. But is he the center of your life? To answer that makes, makes him the center of everything center of your life, the center of your universe. When Jesus called Matthew, he performed a miracle equal in power to healing that leper, to making that crippled man walk. And yes, the same power that brought that young man in, in name back to life again. It's the same miracle he presents in you. And as ridiculous as it sounds, that young man from Nain could have said, no thanks, I'm just going to take a nosedive off of this cliff and go back to the dead that I was instead of the life that you're offering me. 
But we do that on a daily basis, on a regular basis. We go back instead of going forward. Instead of following him and making him the center of everything that we are. He might not be asking you to leave your tax collector booth, but maybe you can work in that booth. Or maybe you can work in that fishing place. He's asking you to be you. When I said he gave Matthew a gift to write some stuff down, well, maybe he's giving us gifts to share in his kingdom as well. But that same power that did all those miracles is working in you. That same power is calling you to make Jesus the king of your life and the king of your universe, the Lord of your life. So my question for you is this. Are you willing to drop everything and follow him? Let's stand. And let's confess together what we believe in the words of the